0: The average American lifespan is about 80 years. According to Forbes, the average American works between 48 and 52 years before retiring. Breaking that down further, on average, people in the U.S. put in over 1,700 hours of work a year, and that doesn't take into consideration the stuff that's after hours that you don't get paid for or the stuff that's after hours like double time and overtime and things like that. So doing the math, that adds up to roughly 10 to 12 solid years of your life spent working. You should feel like what you do for work matters. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and today's episode is about making the most of your working years. My guest today is Dr. Michaela O'Donnell, and she can help. Her book is titled, Make Work Matter, Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing World. That title alone should have you sold on this conversation. Michaela is a mom, executive director of the Max Dupree Center for Leadership and an entrepreneur. She and her husband run a creative agency. She's busy, focused, and she's freaking awesome. I spoke with her one time while she was in an airport. You'll hear more about that in the interview itself. Uh, She was with her kids trying to board a flight. It was was awesome because it was real. I love that she keeps it real and lives this stuff out. Her work is to help you in your work. So please enjoy. And let's jump to Michaela speaking about who this book was written for.
1: You know, in in some ways, this was written to myself 15 years ago. It's all the the stuff I wish I would have known after college and grad school about what it actually takes and the the kind of the deeper work to pursuing um, work that matters to me. So in, in a very personal way, it was kind of uh, a letter to my retrospective self. But even broader than that, it's really for anybody who's asking questions, anybody who's in transition. I mean, the world today, you know, you've likely heard the terminology, the great resignation, or uh, I've seen it called other places, the great reassessment. And a lot of people are asking questions, and we ask these questions in specific ways at different periods. And there's really a, a particular way that those questions of what what I ought to be doing with my time in terms of work come to play for people who are about 25 to 50. Now, the secondary thing I would say is that there's a lot of leaders who talk to me about how do I help the people that work for me see their work as meaningful? How do I get them to buy in? How do I Invest in them, so that would be a, a secondary audience that has been a really pleasant surprise as this book's been going.
0: The the couple of different people that you that you mentioned there, please keep them in mind as as I'm asking uh, imperfect questions because that's who I want this conversation to hit on. So um, you obviously and the team had tons of intention. With the title, and I, and I before we get into the meat of it, if we could talk a little bit more about it and get, I guess, a, a, maybe a working definition of why meaningful work matters and and what meaningful work actually even is. Like, is it just I'm passionate and I never work a day in my life, or what, what is it?
1: I think the title responds to a pain point. There, uh, you know, there's data that says somewhere between 60 and 80% of people at any given time don't like their work. They don't like it because of the people they engage with. They don't like it because of the tasks they're doing. And they don't like it because they don't see, uh, they're not able to sort of see its significance in a larger context of the world, of their values and their beliefs. So it matters because in inside as humans, we think it matters. We we want our work to matter. You know, as humans, we're kind of asking. I think three questions, sort of any any space we find ourselves in. You know, who am I? Where do I belong? And what's my purpose? And those aren't my questions. Those are actually some colleagues at Fuller that they realize these, that young adults are asking these questions in a particular way. And as we started talking, it's like actually these are the questions of what it means to be human. So work matters because it's a major way we spend our time. And as questions, we're always, as humans, we're always asking questions about who am I, where do I belong, and what's my purpose? And so then what is meaningful work? Well, that, that's a really difficult question to answer. And, and one of the things over and over that I get into in the book is that it's usually a lot less grand than we imagine um, because we get grand imaginations and visions about what we ought to be doing. And then the gap between where where we are and and that vision ends up feeling like a punch in the gut or, oh, I have no idea how to, to close that gap. And it, so I would start by saying that meaningful work is usually a lot simpler, actually, than we give it credit for. With the, with the caveat that I think the questions about passion and you know giftedness and mission within an organization are all relevant here and, and come up for different uh, ones of us in different ways at different times.
0: I've got one quick thing for you before we get back to the conversation with Michaela. You can't give what you don't have. Imagine me, early 20s, having my debit card denied at Chili's with my girlfriend, who later became my wife. Yikes, I didn't have the money. It was awful. The same is true in your leadership. If you're out of energy, optimism, hope, vision, answers, you can't give your people what they need. The card is denied. We created the Impact of Leadership community to connect, equip, and grow leaders while having fun. The podcast is now just one piece of the whole puzzle. On top of that, we've created a completely free tier for those of you who want access to more content and engagement from us, but can't commit financially yet. Click the link in the notes or the description that says IOL free to make a profile and join today. Now, back to Michaela. So let's get into the book. I'm, I'm hesitant because my brain wants to ask like four more follow-up questions, but I think we'll hit several of these as we get into the, the meat of the book. Um, And I also want to say, as a caveat, we're not going to do your book justice. So I'm I'm glad that this conversation is happening to whet the appetite of people to actually go get the book. Um, I really, really enjoyed how you stair-stepped and led us along or led the reader along in this. So if you you could, please describe uh, the new world of work. Um, and then some of the gaps that you're seeing in education, like how education is or isn't preparing people for work, that that section helped give me ease of mind uh, looking back when I was when I was coming out of college.
1: Mm, no, those are great questions. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, two, three, four years ago, as part of my work at the Dupree Center, I, I get the pleasure of sitting and talking with different groups of people, and I used to announce to them y'all, the world of work has changed. And it, when I said that, it was as if I was giving voice to something they felt in their bodies, but hadn't quite said out loud. Were, the people would kind of relax and their faces would kind of un, unfurrow, if you will. Um, <laughs> Steve, today, if I said, y'all, the world of work has changed, they'd be like, Are you serious? Have you been living through the last eighteen months (laughs) like the the sky is blue? So, I think it's important to to describe that there have been these longer term changes in in motion, right? In technology and global communication, supply chains and access to ideas, and then there have been these much more recent largely pandemic accelerated changes that so many of us are feeling. Work from home, distributed workforce, uh, insecure paychecks, certain industries kind of no longer being in the forefront in other industries. I mean, think about Zoom. How many people really use Zoom three years ago? They might've used it once a week or however often. And think about how often you use Zoom today. And that that's a that's not just a technology usage, that's an entire change in the way you do your day and you do your week. And of course, that's not every industry, not every industry is meeting-centric and Zoom-centric. But some of these changes are longer term. Some of these changes are are much more recent. And there's an analogy. This is actually Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn's analogy. He said the the old way of working. For an individual, might feel kind of like an escalator. You're riding up it, and it's going sort of at a predictable pace, one one little notch up at a time. And and I would I would sort of counter that and say that today's world of work feels much more like we're in kayaks navigating our way down a river that's full of whitewater rapids. And the skills needed to ride up an escalator versus down whitewater rapids it's just entirely different skills steve so we feel those changes on every level and you know you're talking about education systems i mean i'm an educator and you know i sent my my daughter this morning to her kindergarten class and i think my favorite some of my favorite people in the world right now are her teachers so this is this is coming from a pro teacher pro education mindset but the, the rate of change that that we're describing, there's just no way that systems can keep up with that and stay out ahead of it and prepare for that. And in fact, the very thing I think that educational institutions might need to lean more into is, is preparing people for change, right? Um, one story about this, and then I'll stop. Um, I've got a friend, he's a doctor. Um, his name's Nathan. And he told me that on the first day of med school, he, the, the dean walked in and they were all there and excited. And here we go, we're, we're going to become doctors. We're at the beginning of that process. And the, the dean said something like this. He said, okay, you're here in med school. And I want to tell you today that 75% of what we teach you is going to be irrelevant when you're actually out there practicing medicine. The, the problem is we don't know which 75% it's going to be so we've got to go ahead and teach it all to you that that kind of sums it up we, so educators are educating in the midst of that change too and there's it, it it just it's a new world requiring new skills so that's a bit about some of the changes i see in work and and why it's so difficult to sort of get all the answers we need inside formal education
0: your analogy about uh, kayaking versus riding an escalator um, i I love to I have a kayak. I love to go kayak fishing um, and whitewater rapids are not my friend when I'm trying to trying to fish but re- regardless of if someone's been in a kayak or not, I think the analogy in the picture is great and it ties to um, some things that you have in your book. you talk about symptoms and I think this could be a good spot if you wouldn't mind running through um, some of the symptoms that this world of work is taking a toll on us because, the analogy fits, I think, really, really well because if you've ever kayaked or known somebody that kayaks or have seen a video of someone kayaking, it's exhausting, and you got muscles that are sore. So, um, drawing that that analogy out, could you run through some of those symptoms that the this new world of work is kind of working muscles and and t- tiring people out? What that looks like?
1: So now I'm I'm picturing in my mind a lot of different people that I get to talk to. So I get to talk to people who are who are leading in different industries and are taking up different challenges. And again, thinking about meaning and, and values and their faith in light of that. And I'm hearing people describe that they're overwhelmed. I'm hearing people describe that they're anxious, right? Anxiety happens when we're our brains are trying to make sense of an unknown future. And there's a lot of unknowns here that are not possible to make sense of. I'm hearing people describe that they're exhausted. I think that's probably the the number one thing I'm hearing. And more and more I'm hearing people use a very distinct word, and that word is burnout. And I've heard that word more in the last 18 months than I've had I have in the last five years. And as as I've sat and talked with people and listened a bit, it's there's this thing that's happened in the in the pandemic age of work where, you know, early pandemic, it was fight or flight, right? You know, my parents own their businesses. We own a business. I remember saying to my husband in March of 2020, we've got to be prepared that our, you know, our revenue is going to go down by 80%. Like we just got to be prepared. It might, it might totally go away this year and we have to make adjustments now. And that so we were all in fight or flight at that point. And then so we we're all fight or flighting, fight or flighting over and over and over. And then In some ways, we kind of never got out of that, right? It's it's just that when when you're always on, and when you're you know you're not going to an office or you're in fight or flight, it's actually really hard to assess where work stops and the other stuff starts because you're kind of, you know, you describe me in an airport. Ew. Was that the most healthy thing that I was emailing you in an airport while I was traveling? Probably not. Honestly, Steve, it probably wasn't wasn't the most healthy thing, but it reflects a always on mindset. And that always on mindset paired with another thing I've heard people describe, which is, uh, these this are people's words, toxic environments. So toxic environments being uh, usually other people, but often- the way systems work, manifesting themselves in people. So, I'll give you an example. I was talking with someone who, you know, he needed a break, he needed a two month break because he had had such a crazy twelve months, and in COVID times, because he was worried, he was a freelancer. Because he was worried he wasn't gonna get enough work, he said yes to everything that came, and he ended up overworking. And on the last project that he was on, before he just totally burned out. The there they were doing live events, and so a lot of the demands on him were in the moment three days before, and he described just that he didn't sleep for for two weeks, and he's like, I just can't, I can't do that, and I I don't know how to tell them no, and so there's this blurring of lines things that comes, and so that that burnout, of course, that leads to exhaustion, of course, it leads to feeling overwhelmed. But then, then there's also this sliver of hope in there. Is I, th- I think that's why some people calling this whole season, season the Great Reassessment makes so much sense. It's because there's a lot of people who are like, wait a second, I'm going to take a step back from all of that and think about what's really going on here. What do I really want to do? What really feels meaningful? So some of those symptoms, I mean, I, you know, I haven't felt any of those since you know yesterday. I'd say so. It's not like I'm, I'm pointing the finger at other people, but those are some of the symptoms I'm seeing over and over again. Steve, I'd be curious. I know you work with leaders. If you'd add anything else to that list, I
0: I'll tell you every one of them that I read. Um, you just reiterated. You know, I, I've resonated with, but also I've um, Patrick, my, my business partner with with uh, Impact Leadership. He like his heartbeat. Is for the leader that's like on the edge of burnout. So when you said that term, like when he listens to this, he's going to be like, "That's what I'm talking about," because the people that he um, that he's really, really, really passionate about are the folks that like don't give up, uh, that are burnt out, that don't feel connected, that feel like they have leadership scars that they've they just don't know if they can keep going. Um, So, and then the other one that uh, I don't know if it's it's definitely not in addition to what you to what you said, but the anxiety piece um, and how that anxiety tied to always on tied to social media, apparently everybody else is successful except for me kind of vibe um, that, that, how that whole thing plays together within what we do every day with work. And so I'm in, I, I, that's part of the reason I got so pumped about your book when, when, uh, you know, got sent to me because it, it's practical and it hits people right where they're at. I feel like that student when, you know, in the chair as I'm looking through your book. So I, not necessarily in, a, uh, in a, anything in addition to more of like a kind of a, like a yes and amen to the stuff that you've laid out because it's real. Um, I, this morning, am doing stuff on LinkedIn, responding to messages and that. And I'm thinking, does this, you know,
1: I believe in this stuff, but what, what, am I doing the right things? You know, Steve, when you're talking about being on LinkedIn and does this stuff even make a difference and these little moments, I actually think those are really key moments. Um, and, you know, again, so I, I'm a practical theologian. So sometimes I, I just I think in like biblical metaphors and there is this, you know we we're interested in what we can measure we're interested in data we're interested in what we might call the fruit of our work and there are so many times when it, it's it's not harvest season it's not it's not that's not that's not where we are and I, i'm in my own life i'm growing into more and more of a an acceptance i was going to say comfort but i don't think that's actually it i think it's acceptance of the idea that faithfulness precedes fruitfulness. And there there is this, okay, what does it mean to show up? Sometimes what does it mean to walk away? I think that that, that can be faithfulness too. What does it mean to to put in the time um, and, and expect that there's a rhythm and a cadence before any fruit might be seen? And, and I actually think your example of being on LinkedIn, writing messages, oh my goodness, does this matter? That's a, those are exactly the kind of spaces where this kind of conversation starts to actually move the needle a bit. Because it's like you know what, even if even if someone doesn't respond, like I got to be exposed to somebody who I think is who, who's doing really good work, and I got to cheer them on, and I got to write a couple sentences about my own work, and you know that was the more I do that, the more I clarify my own sense of what I'm up to, and so those two things, even if it doesn't produce the fruit I'm hoping for those two things mattered.
0: Uh, thank you for that. That's good. I'm glad we went on that little rift and uh, feel free um, as I say things to to counsel me because I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks for free, indulging me. <laughs> no, I'll take it. I'll take the free uh, counseling for sure. Um, about a third of the way, I think-ish, uh, about a third of the way through your book, you talk about the, this topic of dealing with, with dysfunction now that we're as an unintentional segue into this, but that the three dysfunctional beliefs, um, could you just walk us through these dysfunctional beliefs and the imp- how they impact our work?
1: Yeah, that's great. There's a, there's a ton of dysfunctional beliefs that um, I think are operative, especially when you start talking about work and calling, right? This idea of something deeper and bigger than myself has compelled me to this place. And once you start talking about those things together, I think we get a lot of dysfunctional beliefs. I, you know, one dysfunctional belief I think would be that it's it's going to all happen right away. Um, my husband, when he was first starting out in film, he had a mentor say to him. You know, it's going to take you 10 years to be where you think you should be today. And I remember, I I remember we were living in our first apartment. He came home and said that to me. And that felt like a punch in the gut, not just for him, but for me. I'm like, 10 years? Who wants to wait 10 years to make all this happen? And, you know, that advice probably was given to my, to Dan about 10 or 12 years ago. And, I don't know that anybody has said anything more true. And now that there is that framework, that's actually hopeful. It's the it's the okay. You can't accomplish as much in as much in a day as you imagine, but you can accomplish way more in three to five years than you might imagine. Um, so I think time and pace, and just because we imagine it, we think it ought to happen right away. I think that's a dysfunctional belief that is is pretty operative. I think also there is a dysfunctional belief that again, going back to this idea of calling that we're called to one special thing um you know the idea of specialness is is a pretty privileged conversation and um what i try to do is link a lot of people back to you know people of faith back to the biblical principles here and it's like well sure god did talk to individuals and ask individuals to do things but it rarely was because because people were so special right it was just because because people were joining it you know there was an invitation to join in something beyond themselves and i think that that resting on a sense of specialness actually gets in the way of a lot of opportunity gets in the way a lot of uh, of noticing what's actually happening the people in our midst um sort of opportunities and so i think that that um i am called to one special thing is is an operative belief And then the other thing I would say is, is, again, this is a calling one. That there's a lot of people who, when I say, "What do you think calling means?", they they say something like, "You know, my calling, my calling is a job I love." And you know, all these people didn't make that up in their own head. That's certainly coming from from coming. (laughs) That's that's coming from upstream and when we limit the work that we do and the meaning that we can participate in exclusively to our jobs and the things that we're paid to do, again, we limit a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for engaging people at the farmer's market and um, hanging out with our kids or, you know, kind of the volunteer work that happens in our community and, and those places teach us significant things about ourselves. They teach us significant things about our sense of giftedness. And so when we equate and focus overly so, and now remember, I'm a person who loves to work and I'm busy and I got more than one full-time job. So I'm not, I'm not trying to discount work. I'm just saying it, it is one part of a larger integrated life. And those other parts of life really do have a lot to teach us a lot of um, opportunity for meaning. So
0: correct it, steer it uh, where it needs to go. Is this statement true that you believe we maybe sabotage ourselves or are selling ourselves short when we try to make work matter by only focusing on work? Like that the peripheral things in life, the farmer's market, the kids, that that, is where we should be looking as well, because without that, our work isn't going to matter because we're only focusing on work.
1: Yeah. I I think that's, you know, we're headed down the right direction here. So the center I work at at Fuller is named after Max Dupree. Max Dupree was longtime CEO of Herman Miller, which is a furniture company, and uh, you know, famous designers, i.e. Charles and Ray Eames, came through there. I'm sitting in the aeron chair right now. I kid you not. It is actually you know, it's ubiquitous in American culture and, and beyond, but it's very, very comfortable and it's very beautiful to look at. And the reason why I bring up Max is because he was a longtime CEO and he was also a longtime chairman of the board at Fuller Seminary. And people would describe Max as being the exact same person wherever he went. He was, you know, when he was giving a big speech as CEO or he was playing with his granddaughter or he was sitting in a board meeting, talking to a customer and probably shopping at the grocery store, he was the same person living out those values. And so, you know, if Max had thought to himself, the one place where I can really make a difference, where I can really put my mark, where things really matter, is my work at Herman Miller." what about all those other places of influence and impact that he ended up having? And then this time with his granddaughter and at Fuller Seminary, and yes, probably the grocery store, ended up shaping the CEO that he was at Herman Miller. So they feed into one another. Um, and, and it's really that sense of integration with work and the rest of life. So it's not set aside and don't think about our jobs. It's, it's think about how work talks to the rest of our lives
0: and uh we're we're hitting on a, a couple things that really get uh get get me fired up one of them is relationship and community the second thing is community so relationships and community are terms that we th- talk about all the time, um, a VP of sales at CCB technology, but then also, uh, vice president of impact of leadership. Now I'm not as busy as you, but I'm on my way. So I'm listening.
1: (laughs) I don't know if (laughs) it's a goal, Steve. I don't know if it's a goal.
0: (laughs) Well, I I'm, I'm watching, I'm listening to you. I'm seeing, okay, this is possible. Not that I should pursue it wholly, but anyway, I've got these, this dual role thing going on as well, but relationships and community are these terms that, that we believe in. That like I believe in and I can take it to my work. So I, I feel fortunate there. Now, could you do, what role do relationships play in this process of meaningful work? You know, take that wherever you would want,
1: but I, I'm leaning in heavily on this one. I think relationships are the whole ballgame. Um now I'll talk personally. I'm thinking about several junctures in my own life. Um, and I'll narrow them into professional junctures. When we started our business, when I decided to get a PhD, when I almost stopped getting a PhD because we were expecting our first child, when you know we were deciding to take on bigger clients, when I was deciding to take the role that I have at Fuller, all of these moments, I don't know that I would have been able to feel as good about any of those big junctures if I hadn't along the way invested in and let other people invest in me so that when these these bigger moments came up, I had a lot of people that knew me well. I could call up and say, can I? Can we talk about this? And that I could then call up again and say, can you just give me some more advice? What am I missing? And I remember it, actually even just with this, because it's most fresh of mine, I've been in my, my newest job for six months I remember when it first was kind of coming to fruition and and there were some choices I had to make and I texted uh, four different people and every single one of those people, Steve said, call me right now, call me tonight, call me tomorrow morning. It wasn't like, let's set up a time for you three weeks from now or two weeks from now. Let me get you with my assistant. These are all, these are all executive level people, C-suite level people. And I don't know that that we that would I would have had access to them if we hadn't had the years of relationship. So I, I think relationships are critical for what I'll call discerning the way forward, um, because they help you know who you are. Uh, they help you, you know, people. Uh, people have said to me, Mikaela, it seems like you get really stressed out when you find yourself in these situations." Oh, Michaela, it seems like this is kind of your sweet spot, and. they're articulating it more clearly and earlier than I'm able to articulate it, Steve. So people are kind of the whole kit and caboodle. Um, And on the flip side of that, it's not just about what people are noticing or helping me with. Every time I choose to invest in people, spend time with people, get to know people, have conversations I, I kid you not. It's it's a gift back to me. Sure, there are every once in a while you have conversations or people who really just drain energy, and there's a, there's boundary issues, and, and I'm not trying to wash over those. But there there's something that happens. I'm, I'm buoyed by the different people in my life and my different communities, and um, so I, I just think it's it's mission critical to be in relationships and spending time with. And and oh, the last thing I'll add here is. Sometimes it's it's time without an agenda too, right? We are we're all busy, we've been talking about how busy people are. I love to go into a meeting and know what we're doing and why we're there and for it to make the most use of my time. Okay, I'm guilty of that. But then there's other times where you got to just stop stop and slow down and ask people how they're doing, what's going on in their lives, how their family family are. And so not moving past those those moments as sort of sidetracked or detours from meaningful work, but that those relational moments themselves are meaningful work.
0: Do you have a, a mentor or different mentors or you know, type of a mentor-mentee relationship?
1: I have several. Um, I, what I will say is that I did not I, I'm not as good at approaching people and saying, "Will you be my mentor?" Um, I don't know that I've ever done that, Steve. But what I have done is approach people who are very, very skilled in things that I aspired to be to grow in, and say, "Can I ask you a couple? Can I ask you some questions about this thing that you do so well?" And then that has stacked itself up over the years into some really meaningful relationships. So I would say I've got four to seven people who fit in that category for me.
0: We say at IOL that we believe we were created for community. Um, And, uh, you know, you've talked a couple different times about biblical examples. And one of them that whether people are religious or not, sort of makes people laugh is like, look, you don't have to believe in Jesus or not, but let's just say Jesus was the son of God. If Jesus could have done the stuff by himself, but chose to be in relationship with people, I think it makes sense that I need people around me too. Cause I'm like crazy flawed. Um, so that's one thing that I, that I point people to. The other thing is the mentor relationship. The reason I ask it was a selfish sort of thing to, to get insight into how you do what you do uh, with your mentors and how that's set up. Um, It's affirmation again, of what other people have said to me about the mentor relationship, find someone that's ahead of you and bring good questions. That's kind of what I've boiled it down to. I'm not an expert in this, but I try to show up every time as a student you know, help me, uh, with, but not just help me and then have nothing, but help me. Here are some questions that I'm wondering about. Um, so that's, that's encouraging, really encouraging.
1: Yeah. And on that last part, uh, let me just say quickly, I've had people, I've had mentors then say back to me, thank you for those good questions. I was able to articulate things that I do so often and commonly, but don't always put voice to. So that actually was good for me too. So there, there's some reciprocity in those good questions. So, uh, I'm with you.
0: So we've got trust your creativity and build resilience. If I had to pick, which I don't, but if I had to pick, I might pick these two chapters um, as my favorites. They're so helpful and challenging. Uh, so, you know, riff on this for a little bit. How do these topics of trusting your creativity and building resilience, how do these topics work together and, and you know, speak on the importance of those?
1: Yeah, that's a great, I, I mean, I think it goes back to the change stuff. So it, you know, in a changing world of work, some of the, and this is not my data, but other experts would say these are two core capacities to people who are going to thrive. The capacity to be creative and to be resilient. Creativity, being able to generate and act on um, either new or useful ideas in light of problems or challenges or needs. And resilience, being Okay, life comes at us. How do we take what life comes at us and actually come out ahead after it? So, and that that's very difficult to do. And resilience is something that people study, and there's a lot written on it. And I think it's probably going to continue to get a lot more attention in the ne- in the coming years because of all the change that we're undergoing. Um, creativity and resilience work together in, in in two other facets. So, creativity is. Okay, let's let's try things. Let's come up with solutions. Let's see if we can help. And there's a bit of a bit of risk there, right? There's a bit of risk in moving outside of our heads into actual action. And you know, I was talking with someone just yesterday, someone who who was telling me about trying he he has been working on landing a big client for 4 months, just doing all the things, all the things, all the things and found out yesterday that he, it didn't work out. He didn't land the client. And, you know, I, I, he texted me and told me, and I said, you want to jump on the phone for five minutes again, one of these five minute calls. Right. And he said, yeah. And I said, why, why is this so hard? And he said, because I really wanted to prove my value. I really wanted to hit this out of the park. I know I could do it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's keep going with your metaphor. You want to hit it out of the park. I played softball in college. I love baseball. Like what is an all-star batting average? And he's like, well, 350 would be really, really good. I'm like, yeah, 350. 350 means that you're getting on base one in every three times that you're going up to the plate. There's a lot of failure built in. And I think we underestimate those kind of batting averages in our work. And What what he and I were able to talk about is the fact that you're batting 350 right now because he's talent. He's very very talented. The fact that you're batting 350 means you're going for big things. It means that you're trying creative ideas, and there's no way to grow in executing those ideas without sometimes failing. And let's learn. Let's like, okay, point to me the three things that you think you're learning from this. And he had them right there. One, two, three things you learned. Like, cool. You can leverage that and apply that the next time you do one of these relationships, or maybe even if you want to get that person back to the table. So there is this this risk that's built into creativity that um, builds in the expectation that sometimes we will fail. It's going to happen. But what resilience says, okay, I I can learn to fail, not only fast, because people encourage failing fast a lot for the sake of efficiency and profit and getting to in in solutions, but I would also say failing well, right? Saying, yeah, that kind of sucked and that didn't feel good. I put a ton of time into that. But it's okay because I am, again, I am more than the things I do in a day. I am loved by people. And this is, again, where my faith comes in. Like, I am, a, I am loved by God and loved by people. And I'm in the midst of this community. And so I can come out on the other side of this failure. It's going to be okay. And once we realize we can recover from failure, the sky is our limit in terms of how creative we actually can be. Mm-hmm.
0: We actually, uh, a colleague of yours will have a quote on, uh, on our sales floor on the board from a colleague of yours. Uh, we can fail, but we can't suck. And, um, uh, page, uh, I think 60 ish of, uh, one of Todd's of, uh, Canoeing the Mountains of Todd's book. Um, my mentor actually gave me that book and highlighted that line and said, I found your favorite quote already. <laughs> and then I just had to, you know, thumb through to find it. But, um, Michaela, I have loved this seriously. Like this has been so good. Thank you again. There's a ton we weren't able to get into, but we're going to have in the show notes links uh, to the book and, and to other resources to connect with you. But I think a great way for us to end, a great place for us to end this conversation would be uh, having you talk about uh, practicing empathy along the way and, and how empathy will help us get there to this place of, of meaningful work.
1: That's great. Yeah, Steve, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for being such a generous, generous host. Um, I, you know, yeah, practicing empathy along the way, people often say to me, okay, so where do I start? Like, what can I do today, Michaela, break it all the way back down for me. And that that's where this concept really comes in. Um, it, so much of innovation and technology and some of the best solutions that are coming out right now. These processes actually start in empathy. It's like, what, 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 what do people need? What's going on? What problems can we solve? And it, sometimes it's hard to say, okay, well, who am I going to go empathize with in order to get going and achieve more meaning in my work? And so, I encourage people to do something called practicing empathy along the way, and it gets gets very, very granular and very, very tactile. I'm like, okay, sit down and make a list. Make a list of the people that you interact with every day. And you can think about just your work or you can get broader. Make a list of everybody you interact with every day. Then expand it to the folks you interact with every week. Then expand it to the folks you interact with every month. And sit and look at that list and consider one to two people that you might intentionally move toward. You don't know what you're going what's going to happen when you move toward them. You don't know what they're if they're going to talk or if they're even going to, you know, what what you don't even know what moving toward looks like you're just going to be looking for opportunities to move toward them so circle one or two people and then within the next week actually move toward those people right so it's as simple as you're in a meeting with them and you private you know you're in a group meeting and you do the private zoom chat and it's like hey how are you today or you send them a little note or you know you do something else you move toward them and Every single time that people do this, they come back to me and they're like, whoa, I didn't even, whoa, all this stuff was opened up. And it's like, okay, there you go. Now you're starting in a very, very tactical way to be able to notice the needs of others, to move toward them, to maybe start to imagine together what might be next. Um, but it's just and empathy cannot be overvalued in today's world, in the workplace, in this very busy, very rapidly moving, um, life that we live. So I would say, start with practicing empathy along the way.
0: Well, that's a great place for us to end. Thank you again, uh, for being here, Michaela, and we'll make sure to, uh, to link the book um, the, uh, the, the leadership, um, uh, center in the uh, show notes as well. And then, um, we'll make sure people are, are pushed to, um, to connect with you, you know, on LinkedIn and that, but not at the airport.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Message received advice taken. Thank you for counseling me, Steve. <laughs>
0: All right. Takeaways and action items. First, the takeaways. Number one, faithfulness precedes fruitfulness. Number two, trust your creativity and build resilience. Number three, failing two out of three times gets you into the hall of fame in baseball. In life, we need to fail well. You are more than the things you do. Action items, this is very important. Take stock of your relationships. We all need help to know who we are along the way. Number two, under the action items banner, we need to recognize the causes for burnout before it happens. Because you never know when you will unexpectedly end up being one of the burned out. If you want a copy of Make Work Matter, or you want to give it as a gift, which I love doing that, give us a written review on Apple Podcasts take a screenshot of it and send that screenshot to info at impactofleadership.com. I'll send a copy of the first few that do the review, uh, a copy of her book. Only new reviews. Don't send me something you wrote in 2018. If you do though, while I respect that move, uh, you're not going to get a book. Now, if you thought of someone during this episode, please consider sending this episode to them with a note of encouragement. Now, we have over 100 episodes that will aid in your growth as a leader. Follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're using to have access to all of them. And as a reminder, don't forget to check the show notes. There's always good stuff down there. Well, I can't wait to be with you again soon. But until then, from all of us at The Impact of Leadership, thanks for listening.